0: Well, it's my joy uh, to be here this morning, to bring you the word, to get into a new series we're calling Greater. This is Pastor Franks. Um, he, he's really worked on this series, and 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 this is going to be a walkthrough of the book of Colossians. It's going to be a walkthrough of the book of Colossians. But you know, in life, I've heard you know our discipleship pastors say this multiple times. Jim Houston, he said this multiple times. It's always spoken in my heart. Says that we always have to defend our heart against the world. We always have to defend our heart against sin. We always have to defend against our faith. We always have to kind of put up those fences to block our hearts and protect ourselves. You see, most of the epistles. That Paul wrote, the short letters that he wrote to the Christian churches who were formed, uh, these letters such as Philippians, Romans that we see in our Bibles, these were letters written to these churches to instruct them in these ways, to guard their hearts, to protect themselves from false teachings, to protect themselves from things that were going on in the world at that time. And we see in these epistles Paul lifting and building up the church. And we're going to see that in this series in the book of Colossians. You see, uh, this book um, was written to the uh, people that were newly formed Christians in the city of Colossae. You find that in modern day uh, Turkey and southern Asia. And this is uh, one of those epistles that Paul actually wrote while he was in prison. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, for preaching Christ, and he wrote this letter. He gained reports from Epaphus, a, a man who was born in the city of Colossae, who learned from Paul during his missionary journey. And Paul actually was not the one who planted this church. It was Epaphus, his disciple, his, his, the person he had been teaching. So Ephesus would bring Paul these reports of the Colossian church, what was going on, and mostly the reports were good. It was, hey, this church is doing well. They are serving the Lord. They are loving one another. The church is healthy. But Paul gained knowledge of what scholars call the Colossian heresy, And this heresy, we don't uh, don't know exactly what pinpoints exactly what this heresy is, but it was spreading around through the church, and Paul had a deep concern for his people. He had a concern that his people were going to be dragged away by this heresy and brought out of their faith. Scholars believe that this was the form uh, known as Gnosticism is a mystical belief that the matter is an evil creation, that there are multiple gods, that uh, Jesus was not necessarily the Savior, the, the Christ, but that he was more of a spiritual leader, that he was more of a wise teacher, that he was more not the Savior that you and I read about the tr- in our true biblical sense. You could compare this close to Buddhism that you find your own enlightenment, that you bring yourself to salvation through your good deeds and through your enlightenment. And Paul was worried about this teaching spreading through his church. You know, his aim of the letter was to guard the hearts of the Christians in the Colossian church. And he does this, and you'll see throughout this series, he does this by preaching the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is upholding the universe, that he is God in the flesh, that he's come to the earth to proclaim who he is, to die on the cross and save sinners who repent and believe in him. God's word has been attacked from day one. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, what did the serpent, we know that as Satan, say to them? Surely you will not die. Surely you can eat this fruit and become like God, leading them into disobedience, leading them into the fall as we see today, which is why we have a broken world that we have today. But of course, in that very same chapter, God promises redemption through the future coming of the Christ. And the Christ has been under attack through different religions, through different methodologies, through different philosophies. And Paul writes this letter to guard the hearts of these Christians. But we get the warm, fuzzy stuff today. Usually, Paul, in his letters, he begins with a greeting. He begins with an exhortation of God. He begins with a, thanks, a thanksgiving for the faith of the church. Unless you're the Corinthian church, they were pretty messed up. But then, he always moves into an exhortation of Christ. When well, we get the warmer, fuzzy stuff today, we get to see Paul's joy, in their faith and his prayer for their spiritual growth. So if you would grab your bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be there, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, starting in verse 1. Oh, and by the way, I'm reading in the CSB translation. If you're using your phone, you can easily find that. If you have a different translation, you might see some uh, differences in the verbiage, but it's a great translation. Um, You should be able to still follow along very easily. Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you the day you heard it and the day you came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn from this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and all spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in knowledge, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, your truly 100% inerrant, fully inspired word. God, we pray that we would just understand it today. We pray that we would understand what we are reading. We pray that we would grow from what we are reading. We know that you've given us the words of life. We know that your knowledge is from eternity. You know what's best for life. And so we pray that these words build us up. We pray that we learn today. God, I pray that you would speak through me. Get me out of the way, Lord. Push me down. Let the Holy Spirit speak. In your name I pray, amen. So Paul, as he does in most of his letters or epistles, he greets the people of Colossae and he does it in this way. He does it with the title of apostle. He gives himself the title of apostle. Now this was Paul's official title given to him by the Lord Jesus. And he does this to show this is a letter of authority, This is a letter from an apostle who was given the gift of the Holy Spirit inspired by Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, the apostles who started as Jesus' disciples who basically were, Jesus taught them, they followed him, they were chosen and followed him. They were taught all of his commandments. They were taught the the good news of the gospel of what was gonna happen, that he he would die of crucifixion, he would rise from the dead. And he empowered them and he promised them He promised them of a coming helper. He told them that you will proclaim my name to all the ends of the earth. You will be hated for proclaiming my name to all the ends of the earth. But I will send you a helper. I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God in spirit. He said, I will send him to you and he will lead you. And so after Jesus' death, his crucifixion on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, he rose from the dead, and he reappeared to his disciples. And he spent forty days with them. And on that last day, the day of Pentecost, what our Bible tells us that he was risen to heaven. He ascended to heaven, and when he ascended to heaven, he sent down the Holy Spirit on to the apostles. Now the word apostle means to be sent. So they were sent with this gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happens when he gets it, when they get it? Well, they immediately start speaking in tongues. Now, if you don't know what tongues are, okay, it's a gift to speak in multiple languages at one time. In this, and during this time, we know that there were multiple languages living in the region. So God gave them the miraculous ability to speak these languages so everybody could hear the proclamation of Jesus Christ, a miraculous gift. They were also given gifts of healing, They were given gifts of of power, such as Christ had. Now, why would the Holy Spirit give them these gifts? Gave them these gifts for authority. When the apostles came and they healed someone, or they spoke in these miraculous tongues, or they did something of that nature, they, the people seeing it, knew who they were sent by. They knew they were sent by Jesus. And most of them bowed down and worship. In fact, you see in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up, proclaims Jesus, proclaims that he was crucified, risen from the dead. And we see 3,000 people come to Christ. First megachurch ever started. Boom, right there at Pentecost. Because of the authority that Peter had. Now, the Jews hated Christ. They wanted him suppressed. They even saw, if you understand the book of Matthew, they even were given an eyewitness account of the resurrection, and yet they paid those guards who gave that account to go lie and suppress it. So, of course, they did not want to hear this message, but when the apostles were given the authority, it couldn't be denied. I want you to consider Moses. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. You know the story of Moses. Moses called by God to go to his people who were enslaved in Egypt, To go to Pharaoh and to speak to him and say, Free my people. God says to release his people. So God gives Moses this call, but Moses isn't necessarily chomping at the bit to go do it. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 Moses answered, He says, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me? But say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, well, it's a staff. He replied, throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. I love that detail. He ran from it. The Lord, the Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff. Now, I'd really want to know that that's the Lord telling me to do that before I go running, and grabbing that snake. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe. Listen to this, that they will believe That the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In addition, that wasn't good enough. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, he was diseased and his hand resembled snow. Other translations call this leprosy. Put your hand back in your cloak, he said. And when he put his hand back in his cloak and he took it out, it became like the rest of his skin. Leprosy hand back in the cloak, healed. Miracle from God to show authority. If they will not believe you then, excuse me, if they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they will respond to the second sign. And if they don't respond to the two signs, you are to take water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and it will become like blood. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent or either in the past, recently, you've seen that you have been speaking to your servant because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Moses had some kind of speech impediment. We don't know necessarily what it is, but it was enough for him to see these signs and still not believe God was calling him. But what's God say to him in verse 12? Or verse 11. The Lord said to him, who placed mouth on humans? Who makes the mute deaf or the seeing blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go And I will help and I will speak and teach you what to say. So God gives Moses this authority to go to Pharaoh, step up to him and say, Let the Lord's people go. Now, can you imagine if Moses would have stepped up without this authority? Showing up to the palace, showing up to these guards, Hey, excuse me, I'm Moses, I'd like an appointment with Pharaoh. The guards say, well, who are you or what do you need? I need to speak with Pharaoh. On what authority? Well, I was talking to this bush out in the wilderness and it told me to come. They would have looked at him like he was crazy. But because he had the authority to use these miraculous gifts to show he was from the Lord, that was the authority he had. And that's authority we see with the apostles. And this is so important to us. But a quick question Are the apostles for today? Good question that we ask. And it's a good question that the Christian church still doesn't really technically agree on. Are these apostles with these sign gifts here for today? Some believe fall into the uh, sensationist camp who say, no, that office is technically closed. Those gifts probably aren't available for the church to seek today. There's continuationists who say, absolutely, those gifts of signs and wonders should be sought after today. Now, I'll tell you where I fall. I technically fall in the sensationist camp. I don't know, in my spirit, that those apostles are for today. Now, I believe in miracles. I believe God absolutely works in miracles. I don't think there's any denying that. But for me, I don't believe that we have apostles today that necessarily need those signs and wonders gift. And the reason why I fall that way, and a lot of scholars say this, not, not because I say it, they say it, I just, I believe what they're saying because we have this the revelation of god he has given us all we need this is our authority this is what we need when we go and preach the gospel here is our authority God has given us his word he's given us the way of life to live he's given us how this world's gonna end he's given us what is pleasing to him this is his knowledge and his authority so when the scriptures were written when all these letters and documents were collected and put in what we call our Bible today that can that office of Apostle closed and we have the authority what we need today. Now, if we disagree on that, no issues. We are still in Christian fellowship together in Jesus. If you don't agree with me, you could send me an email. I'd love to talk it over with coffee because there's a lot of debate on this today. Uh, but this is nothing that we, that Christians cannot be outside of fellowship with today. But what is true, or excuse me, something that is troubling is there are some Denominations are some churches that believe you have to have a sign or a wonder to preach a true gospel. We just don't see that in scripture. When you preach the gospel or share your faith, that's the power. That's the authority. The authority of Christ. You don't need to take a water bottle like this and throw it on the ground and it become a snake to show someone that they are in real danger of their sin and they need a savior. It's the gospel today that has the authority. The authority. There's some denominations, churches that teach this. It's absolutely false. The gospel is the authority to speak and preach the truth of Christ. The apostles, doing what they did with their signs and wonders, what it does give us in complete. Confidence today is that what we have today in our Bibles was completely, 100% inspired by God. Because they were writing with the authority, we have the writings from God himself. Yes, these apostles, they wrote the letters, they pushed the pen to the paper, but the author of these scriptures was from God. There are no errors in your Bible. The Bible is sufficient for your life. God has revealed what is best for life. He's revealed how we ought to live. And he's also revealed how to be right with him, how to come in faith-loving fellowship with him. And it's through Jesus Christ. It's through saving faith in Christ. Because the apostles' authority, because God blessed them with that authority, we have a fully inspired, 100% true Bible in our possession. That's good news for you and I. God has made himself known to you and I. And it's through our Bibles. It's through his word. Going back to Colossians 1, Paul now transitions his letter from who he was, his authority, now who the letters to. Verse 2, I want to read verses. Let's we'll start with verse 2 and go down to verse 5. To the saints, in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven that has come to you. So he sends now who this letter is addressed to. It's addressed to The saints. Now, we see that all in Scripture. We see the letter addressed to the saints. Now, who are the saints? Well, I can tell you they're not uh, guys or gals in perfect white robes floating around the earth, living perfect holy lives. Oh, the saints are people like you and I. The saints are people like you and I who have sinned in our lives, who have heard the gospel, who have came to Christ and who have now seen his glory and seen his forgiveness. Romans chapter 8 answers this. Paul answers this for us of what a saint is, what a saint in the Bible is. Romans chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints, there it is, according to the will of God. For we know all things work together for the good for those who love God. So there's a characteristic of the saint. Who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Don't let that word scare you. To be conformed to the image of the Son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also Glorified. So here's the chain of who a saint is. They were called by the gospel. The gospel was preached to them. They heard who Christ was, died for their sins, rose from the dead, and so they were regenerated by this gospel. John 3, Jesus tells us you have to be born of the Spirit. The calling of the gospel makes you what we call born again. So they were called by the power of the gospel, and then it says this, they were also justified. That's very important for you and I to know today. Regenerated by the gospel and now justified. And what that means is that you and I, we both have sinned. These people in these letters had sinned. And on judgment day, they stand guilty before God in their sins. However, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, Because of his perfect life, because of the life that he lived, keeping God's law, perfectly keeping God's law, in in perfect communion, no sin at all. When we place our faith in Christ, we are given his life. It's called imputation, so that we stand before God in our sins, guilty verdict, however, because Christ took our punishment we are justified and seen as innocent because of the life he lives. So when we, when we sin and guilty and we give our life to Christ, the life that Christ lives covers our guilty life. So now we are stand innocent in God's eyes. We are seen as saints in God's eyes, not because we're awesome, because Christ is awesome. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter five Verse 21 says, a staple of our faith here. He, talking about Christ, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. How about that? We don't have the righteousness. We don't have the credentials. We can't walk into heaven without the righteousness of Christ, but it's given to us because of what he did And we are able to walk in and put on that righteousness that he earned, that he earned. And so then, uh, back to our verse in Romans, it says that they are glorified. And in that process of being glorified, we walk a life of sanctification, which means that we have been called by the gospel. We've been regenerated, we are justified in God's eyes, and now we want to turn from our sins and we want to run to Christ. This process of sanctification is us killing sin in our life by the power of God, by the power of his word, and walking to Christ. So this means we should see changes in our lives. We should see a change from our regeneration to our walk with Christ. We should see sins being buried. We'll always struggle with sin, We'll always fight our battles because we are in our flesh, but this process of sanctification is the Holy Spirit and the power of his word saturating our hearts. And then he ends it with this in verse 30. And those he also justified, he also glorified. This is amazing news. On the last day, we will be, our bodies which are in the grave, our souls are with Christ if we have believed those who have not believed, their souls are in hell. But the ones who have believed in Christ, they are with Christ. And on the last day, they will be glorified. Their bodies will be risen and they will be united with their bodies, perfectly healed. No aches, pains, no joints, arthritis. You will be in your perfect, glorified body, dwelling with Christ forever. That's amazing. How many of you guys wake up sore every day? I do many years of athletics, many years of toil and hard work. But to know that you'll be glorified, reunited with your body, you're not just going to be some floaty spirit, you know, floating around. You will be glorified with your body coming together. This is what a saint is. It's someone who has been called by the gospel, who has been regenerated, For the life that Christ lived, you are justified in the sight of God, you are sanctified walking in in the path of Christ, and one day you will be glorified with your body, perfectly healed and restored. And let me tell you something about that teaching of imputation. You know what that means? That means the pressure is off you. It means you don't have to carry the weight of living this perfect, holy life. Yes, we want to turn from sin. Yes, the Bible is clear. God hates sin, and when we sin, we store his wrath. But Christ lived the life that none of you or me could live. Matthew chapter 11, he speaks, Christ speaks to people who were living under this burden, who were living under the time of this false religion that taught you had to learn your righteousness. Listen to what he says to them. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What an amazing call to you and I today, especially to these people that heard this for the first time. There's the pressure is off. The shame, the guilt, don't carry it. Throw it to Christ. Give it to him. Let him, his imputated righteousness, come to you and step in your place. This was the call then, and it's the call now. Christ is worthy to take our guilt and shame because he lived the perfect life, the only one worthy enough to do so. So Paul moves from his authority in the writing the letter to who this letter was for, the saints who have came to Christ, who have come to the knowledge of God and through Christ. Now he moves into a thanksgiving prayer for these Colossians in this church. I'm going back to verse three, Colossians one, verse three. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ and the love for all the saints because of hope reserved for you in heaven for you've already heard about this hope from the word of truth and the gospel that has come from you. So he's thankful to God that Christ has come. He's thankful to God that they have heard the gospel and responded by faith. He's thankful that they are in love walking in love with each other as a church should do, as a church people uh, giving their lives to Christ should do, should be connected by the bond of love. But look at the hope he talks about, the hope reserved for you in heaven, for you've already heard about this hope. Biblical hope, this hope that Paul's writing about to these, these Colossians, this isn't a hope that we experience today, this isn't the worldly hope that we experience today. It's not the hope that we are used to. No, this is a hope that is surefire, that is bound to happen, and this hope means we look forward to it. We don't hope that it happens, we look forward in hope that it happens. Hebrews chapter six, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, just listen to this. Now we desire that each one of you demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance, keyword assurance, of your hope until the end. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, says this. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Now, I like a different translation here because it says faith is the assurance of what is hoped for and convicted of what is not seen. This is still a good faithful translation. I like the wording in the other one because it is assurance. It is surefire assurance of a hope to look for. And Paul talks about their hope here, the hope of heaven. It's the same hope in this world. I hope our oldest daughter, Lucy, will clean her room. But I'm not counting on it. But if she does, that's amazing, great. I hope the Georgia Bulldogs will win a national championship this year. I'll just leave that there. It's a hope And we're not 100% sure, but it'd be great if it happened. This is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is we look forward to this. We look forward to the coming of Christ. We look forward to the day that he comes. He judges the living and the dead, and he brings his people into fellowship with him. This is the hope that is built on this Colossian church, the gospel message that's come to them. And God's given us a little peek at this hope that we look forward to, that these Colossians look forward to. Revelation 21, verses one through five, listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven, now this is a vision, before I get in, this is a vision from John, another apostle, he was given a vision from Christ of end times and what the, the new heavens and earth will look like when Christ comes. Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth, And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the seas were no more, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling with his humanity, and he will live with them. And there will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God, and he will wipe away, listen to this, Saturate yourself into this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. There's an amazing hope and promise that we have to look forward to. It's the hope that Christ has bought for us. It's the hope of heaven to come when he comes and brings his people into this heaven, into this new Jerusalem, enjoying the presence of Christ forever. Now, I may be reading into this a little bit, and feel free to email me if you think I am. But when we we stand, how glorious of that will be, standing, probably scared to death, but hearing those sins, hearing that account for our life given, but then you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Grabbed by Christ, brought into heaven, the new earth and the new heavens. That's the hope that Paul was writing to these Colossians to be built on. The hope that they could walk through the life that they were, the current life that they were in to look forward to what was to come. And because God's word is authoritative, because God's word is perfect, because it's inerrant, we have conviction and hope to look forward to this future heaven. But we've got to see the other side of it too. For every hope there is in the heavens, there's also the reality of hell. God has prepared hell for those who reject him, for those who reject his son Jesus, for those who who suppress him. Matthew 25, verse 41 says this, that he will also say to those on his left, depart from me for you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. For God to be holy and just and perfect, he cannot let sin go unpunished. it would be like the judge allowing the murderer to go free because he's sorry. It'd be like the rapist being allowed, given some kind of grace that they don't deserve. If we have a perfect holy God, he cannot let the evil of the world go unpunished. And because he is so holy and perfect, every one of us have stepped into that evil in some way, shape, or form. Just ask yourself the Ten Commandments. Have we ever told a lie? Have we ever stolen? Have we ever done anything like that? If we've done that, then we accept that reality. But again, what did God do for sinners to be given into this new Jerusalem, this new heavens, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the sins of all the world. And for those who would repent and believe, they will be, they will be given this hope, a new life with a new heart built on Christ. And they can look to this hope that's coming. This is, the, this is why Paul is so joyful for these Colossians. This is why he's so joyful is because what they have to look forward to, the reality of disobeying God, but there's hope in Christ that God is merciful and he's patient and he gave them hope and Paul writes from that joy, that hope. We have that same hope. That's true for us today. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in what he did and it's sure fire going to happen because it's God's word. It's his revelation. And he moves from a, Paul then in this letter moves from hope to a report, if you will. He moves into verse, starting in verse 6. That has come to you, speaking of the gospel, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and truly came to appreciate God's grace. You learn from this from Epaphras, our dearly loved servant, He is faithful minister on Christ and before your half about your love in the Spirit. So what's Paul talking about there? Well, there's a key phrase there. It's this truth that was moving all over the world. What is that? Well, that's the Great Commission, baby. That's Jesus' call to his disciples. That's the hope that would come to the entire world. Matthew 28, verse 19, going to the world, And and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples, bringing people to Christ all over the world. So that was his call to his disciples. He said, You will be hated. People will try and suppress this truth, but you are to go into the world and be my witnesses to bring people to me, to bring people to God. That was the Great Commission. And this is what Paul is referring to, growing all over the world, the fruit that was growing all over the world. These apostles, this was not a walk in the park. This is not like they just showed up to some marketplace and said, hey, if you'll turn from your sins and trust Jesus, you'll be saved. No. They faced riots. They faced imprisonment. Ultimately, they faced death. Records tell us that Peter was crucified upside down. And he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord was. There's a record that John was thrown in hot oil. Paul was stoned. And we can go on and on. But these apostles were hated and ultimately died. They died because of what they saw. The risen Christ. And the book of Acts... The Acts of the Apostles, as most people believe is what it really truly should say, is the act of the Great Commission coming out to the world and making its way all over the place. The church is built on this, the resurrection of Christ and the Acts of the Apostles. Listen to what they did. We already talked about Acts chapter 2. Peter preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, 3,000 people come to Christ. Paul who was originally named Saul, was a hater of Christianity. He wanted Christians dead. He wanted the what was called the way, not Christianity, suppressed. Our discipleship pastor spoke on this. I don't want to belabor the point because he did, did such a great job speaking on it. But Saul converted to Christ, becomes a missionary for him. He goes and he preaches the gospel all throughout Asia in chapter 12. He would then go to European cities such as Philippi, Thessalonica, and Acts 15. And then he would produce these letters to these churches. While being imprisoned, and these are the letters that we have today through the Acts and their mission of the Apostles. We have the church today because the Acts and the mission of the Apostles, and it's all built on Jesus' command go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, bring my people to me. My sheep will hear my voice, and they will come to me. And what's amazing about that is God uses his creation as his instrument to bring his people to him. He uses you and I to do that. He used these apostles to do that. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 14, Paul writes this to the Roman church. Listen to this. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What joyous news that is. Verse 10, one who believes with your, your heart resulting in righteousness and confesses with their mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the Lord of all richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then verse 14, how then can they call on him if they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without the preacher? I don't think you have to be standing up here to be the preacher in the sense that uh, Paul's talking about here. Yes, he trained missionaries. Yes, he edified pastors. But you and I are still, to this day, active participants in the Great Commission. First of all, when you heard the gospel and you came to faith in Christ, you were part of that fulfillment. You were part of the preacher, the one who goes out and speaks, your family member, your friend, whoever presented the gospel. For me, it was my assistant wrestling coach in college. That's who brought it to me. How will they not believe if they haven't heard? You and I, we are active participants in the Great Commission. So when you share your faith, To a family member, you are fulfilling a command from Jesus. When you go out into the street and witness to somebody, maybe you don't even know, you are fulfilling the command of Jesus. When you share the gospel with your kids, you're fulfilling the command of Jesus. Students, when you are bold in your faith and you share your faith in your schools with people who are lost, your teammates, whoever it may be, you are actively walking in a commission from God that was sent from eternity Through Jesus Christ we are active participants we don't have to raise people from the dead we don't have to throw our staffs down to make snakes we don't have to put our hand on our cloaks to bring out a leopard hand and put it back for it to be healed you need the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the word if you believe God is who he says he is and he's you have hope in his promise you'll speak it with conviction you'll fulfill that great commission you'll speak with authority you'll carry out God's will through that. The final section that we'll cover today in this letter, Paul then moves from a point of thanksgiving for their faith, thanksgiving for the Great Commission exploding throughout the world, and then he moves into spiritual growth for the people in this church. Colossians 1 verses 9, let's go to verse 10. For this reason, since the day we heard, we haven't stopped praying for you. There's something to, something to be uh, thinking about. We haven't stopped praying. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all his wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that you will walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. So Paul is persistent in their spiritual growth. He doesn't stop praying for them. He asks that they are filled with the knowledge of his will and understanding. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, he means by the knowledge of his will, being the word, what God's law is, how we ought to live. We see this, we see God's will being shown in the very beginning. He commanded Adam and Eve you can eat from any tree except for this specific one right here. Of course, they disobeyed that. Then we see Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus. Moses is given the Ten Commandments, a reflection of who God is and how they ought to walk. Jesus gives two, he calls the greatest commandments. Love your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul. and Love your neighbor as yourself. But listen to this. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21. Before I read that, though, what... We always hear that, that phrase, God's will for my life, God's will for what he wants me to do. I think that's a different statement than God's call in your life. I think we get that mixed up with God's call in your life. God calls people to do things. He calls some to be businessmen. He calls some to stand up here and preach. He calls some to teach. Now, I don't want to brag on uh, our, one of our coaches here, Joe Craft. I'll tell you this, and I'm not saying this just because he's here. He had an influence on my life as well as Coach Houston here. But I'll tell you, there's not a teacher, I will say this respectfully, second to none, Joe Craft treats the kids in this school Second to none, better than anybody I've seen. There's not a kid in this school that's not greeted by him. There's not a kid that's not loved by him. You see that pouring out. I see it through his coaching as he's allowed me to coach with him. He is called to do that. You can see that calling. You can see it there. You just see it. But that's different than the will of God. The will of God is simple it's obedience. He created man to walk in his image. To be His image, it's obedience. In that passage, Matthew seven verse twenty one, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. This is the sermon Jesus preached. He says this: Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will, of my Father. What's well, a scary statement? Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who attends Sunday service, went to the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls him Lord went to the kingdom of heaven. It's a scary statement, but it's the one who does the will of my Father. And I know some of you are looking at me saying, I thought we were saved by grace. We are, saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But like we talked about with sanctification, if we've come to true knowledge in Christ, if we have been born again of the Spirit, we will see change in your life. I think James clears this up. Book of James, chapter one, verse 22. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this really quickly. James, verse one. Be doers of the word. And not just hearers of the word, only deceiving yourselves. He also says uh, later in that that book that faith without works is dead. So it's not the the works are not the root of the tree. It's the faith in Jesus Christ that has changed your life and made you desire him. That's the root of the tree. And the fruit is the root of that love that's changed you. I love what one of our small group uh, leaders says. She says, hey, if you're an apple tree, I should see some apples. If you're an orange tree, we should see some oranges, right? Makes sense, right? Pretty simple to understand. If we do the will of God, if we are doing that will, it's from an active faith and obedience to Christ. Now, Paul, in Galatians 5, he writes to the Galatian church, and he lays out a picture of this, of one that walks in the Spirit, and one that walks without the Spirit. So I say then, I walk by the Spirit. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 16. Go down to verse 23. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. So the, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. And they are opposite to each other. And you don't know what you you don't do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, so we have the Spirit of God and we have the flesh. The flesh, the deeds are obvious. Sexual immorality, immoral purity, promiscuous idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousal, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these as I warned you before that the practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then we see the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. You probably sang that song as a kid if you were in church as a a kid. What Paul is saying here is there's two different evidences here that you can see there's evidences of the flesh, evidences of the Spirit. Now, does this mean that if you are in the spirit of God, you're going to walk and live just this perfect life? Absolutely not. Because in Romans 7, Paul writes, oh, how I want to do the will of God, but there's things on this side that that are driving at me, and I don't want to do them, but my flesh is tugging at me. Bad news, we're going to fight that war until glory. But you could see in Scripture, when we see... Living in sin, when we see walking in sin, it's a habitual pattern of a heart that's not been brought to Christ. Because the power of the gospel will change. You should see sanctification and growth in a regenerated heart. And so this is why Paul is so eager to write that they grow in their faith, that they continue that climb, not to earn their salvation, but to be a proof of their faith, to be a leaning into Christ, to be a one who is faithful to him. This is the will of God in his scripture. This is the will. And look at what, it, going back to that letter in Colossians, look at what the end of it says, the end of this verse that we're studying today. Verse 13, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of he loves, and in, his redemption, in in him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Just like what Jesus tells us in, jo- in John 8 He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me will come out of darkness and will walk in the light. I want you to take take everything we know about morality, take everything and just strip it down, just wipe it away. We have a blank whiteboard. How do we know what is good? I mean, just think deep down. get Get a little philosophical with me. How do we know what is good? Tradition? Because opinions and we've seen a flourishing lifestyle from good, well, I would argue that that's not the ultimate answer. You know, Hitler convinced an entire nation to kill an entire civilization because it was a good thing and a right thing to do in his eyes. And he was so powerful that he had a whole country convinced of this. And I'm sure there's many other examples. We know what is right and good because the word of God and his knowledge God has given us his knowledge of what is good and right because he knows what's best for life. He knows what is best for our lives. He knows what disobeying him will bring, sin that destroys our lives, destroys relationships, destroys our families, but ultimately destroys our walk with him. He knows how to what is right for life and what's healthy for life. I want to read this verse to you real quick. Proverbs Man, I I encourage you, if you want a good study, read the Proverbs once a month. Every day, read these Proverbs. These are the wisdom of God poured out, as it always is. This is Solomon writing to his son, the wisdom of God. Solomon, another guy that God inspired to write. Write to his son and show him, son, this is how you need to walk. You want life? Here it is. Listen to this. Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 27. My son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. Do not lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find him, and health to one's whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Do not let your mouth speak dishonestly and let your lips devilishly. Let your eyes fix forward, fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Don't turn right or left. Keep your feet away from evil. He paints this picture, when I read this, of two forks in the road. There's God's knowledge, and then there's our own knowledge. When we walk in our own knowledge, we trip and fall, don't we? We trip and fall. We fall in the weeds, we fall in the briars, we destroy relationships, we do things that are harmful to life. But when we walk in God's law, we at least alleviate from those things. We, when we seek His knowledge, we seek righteousness. And when we seek righteousness, we see a benefit of life. We see doing his will. And this is what Paul wants these Colossians to do. Do God's will. Again, not to earn your salvation. You don't earn your salvation. The will of God in your heart is a result of Jesus Christ changing their hearts and bringing them to him. So I want to close today with two walks for us. Okay, two ideas to walk in. First one is to walk in joy for what God has done for us. To walk in that joy of what God has done for us. What's he done for us? He's given us salvation through Jesus Christ and faith in him alone, because he paid the debt for our sins, he's the only one worthy to, and he rose from the dead, conquering death. So what's that mean for you and I today? We know what it means for eternity, the hope of heaven, there's joy in that. What about today? Many different ways we can see the joy in Christ today. Loss of family, we know that Jesus has prepared a home for those who would come to him. We have family, which we, gosh, 2020, I'm sure there's lots of loss in this room, right? We've experienced it in our own family. We know people in the community who have experienced it. But praise be to God that most of those have been Christians. Most of those have had that hope, and they are in that place prepared for them right now. The pain of society, the spread of ideologies that are painful in life, one of them today, critical race theory, which is being pumped, not only in our school, not only in our everyday life, but in our school systems. There's school systems who are now adopting this, and basically, if I can put this um, in a way to, to best describe it, it's a system that puts oppressor against oppressed. It's judging by race and not by heart. It's judging with certain ethnic groups that don't have a say because of what the past has brought. And what that's done is caused evil. What that's done is called division. And quite frankly, it's hard to listen to, it's hard to watch because it is painful. There's no grace in it. There's no forgiveness, there's no growth. It's growth, it's justified racism, but this is one of the struggles we face today. But how do we walk in joy in the face of that? Jesus Christ, baby. Jesus Christ and his gospel bringing joy to the hearts of sinners and the hope that those who have fallen in those traps can come to his knowledge and be regenerated. And the hope that we look forward to, even in the face of this, to be bold, to be strong, and to look to Christ. As you'll see later on in this letter, Paul writes, set your minds on things that are above, to Christ seated on the right hand of God. No matter what this life brings, and this life brings pain, the Bible actually promises that. Just because you are a Christian does not mean you are escaping that. But there's hope and joy and victory in Jesus. Along with that walk, there's joy in the power over sin. Look, I've told you already, and you know it, experience it. Sin is a struggle we will all face. We will all face it. Our flesh desires it. We drink iniquity like water. But we have power over that sin. Why? Why? Because of the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, in the hearts of believers, working to make them more like Christ. Gentlemen, we have power over pornography, which is eating the hearts of our young people, eating the hearts of marriages. You have power over that. I love this analogy John Piper made. I don't know if you know John Piper, great pastor theologian. He made this analogy, and I wish I had it here to play because he could tell it better than I can, obviously. But it's a pit. There's three men with a belt tied around their waist with a cinder block at the end, and they're in this pit. And this pit represents evil and wickedness of pornography. And the first man is pulled. The weight gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Click. He's pulled into the pit. He falls into that. Second man. He fights it, he gives his resistance, he pulls, he pulls, he pulls, but then the desires grow, and they grow. Click, he falls in. And Then the third man, the desires, they pull, they pull. Now notice, he's not saying, no problem at all, he's not feeling temptation. The temptation's there, the pull is there, the pull is there, and he sees his wife, he sees his kids, most importantly, he sees Jesus. And he sees the beauty of Christ, and he sees the beauty of death on the cross, and he doesn't click. We have power over our sin because of the Holy Spirit and because of the power of Jesus. Paul wrote for them to grow spiritually so they would grow away from their sin that's destructive for life and destructive for their faith. You and I have power over that. And my last point of walk is to walk in obedience. We don't walk in obedience To be good, we don't walk in obedience for our salvation. We only walk in obedience because we love God and we love Christ and we know what he gives us is best for life. So my encouragement to you is just to walk in obedience this week. Again, I know none of us in here are perfect. I don't stand up here as a perfect man. But we have power to walk in obedience. So I encourage you to do that. So what I wanna do as we close, I just wanna have a time of repentance and confession, okay? not asking anybody to come up, not asking anybody to to do anything. Um, You can stay right in your seat. This is a time with you and God, okay? If there is sin that you are struggling with in your life, now's the time we want to come together as a church, as saints seen by God, and repent and give that to him. He offers that freely. He is kind, merciful, graceful, and that offer is there if we'll repent and turn. That word repent just means turn away. If you're struggling with sin, I just want you to know I'm here for you. That's what we do. That's why we're here. We don't come as perfect men, but we come as men that love you and love, want you to turn from sin just like Paul wanted these Colossians to do. So I want to have a time of repentance in your own heart Confess these sins and feel God's grace of forgiveness and see Jesus on that cross taking these sins for you. Kill it, move on from it. Now I also want to invite you, if you're in here and you have not accepted Christ, if you have not done this, if you have not submitted to him by turning from your sins and trusting him fully in your heart, I want to invite you to do that, okay? If you do that today, if you make Christ your Savior today, one, it's the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. You'll stand. He'll say, well done, and faithful servant, if you truly believe. It's not a one-time prayer. This is not a one-time thing. This is a denial of yourself and trusting him fully. If you do that today, come talk to me. I want to know about it because we want to walk with you in your next steps. If you're watching online and you do that, you can go on our website. You can find our contact. Don't leave your computer until you tell us about that what you've done We want to walk you through those steps. It's not a one-time thing. You understand that? It's not a one-time thing. It's a long journey, but he, as it says in Matthew, his burden is light. Lay it for him. Let's have a time of repentance. Let's have a time of confession in your own hearts. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Just take a moment. God, we come before you as broken sinners. There's not one person in this world that walks the streets that is a saint in the sense that they have never sinned. God, we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory, and we will struggle. You've told us that in your word. Paul wrote that to us. We will struggle. God, we want to bring our sins to you. First, we want to thank you for even giving us a gift of repentance. The Bible says that faith is a gift. You've given us a gift to turn, to believe, to trust, and a gift of promise, of salvation. If there's anyone in here who has never experienced that salvation, God, I pray that you would work on their hearts now. I pray that you would show them the reality of hell, but the promise of heaven through faith in Jesus. I pray that they come today. I pray that anyone in here today who is struggling with sin, that they would bring that before you, and if they need to, that they would bring it to other believers, that they could walk together, they could disciple, that they could leave that sin behind. I pray that every one of us walks out of here today with the power over sin, with the joy in Christ, and that we would walk in obedience and see that fruit in our lives, that we would encourage our families to continue to walk with you, that we would encourage our students, our kids, to continue to seek you and to love the gift of your law and the gift of forgiveness that you've given us. God, we look to the joy that you've set before us. We look to that hope of heaven, but we have hope today, too, and it's power in your son, Jesus. I pray that every person in here, Lord, this week, no matter what discouraging they see on TV, no matter what sexually promiscuous thing that floods their, their social media pages, I pray that they would look to you, look to you and nowhere else. They would be encouraged by your word. They would be sanctified in your truth, as Jesus says, sanctified in the word of God. I pray that everyone continues their walk towards you. I pray this week that we meditate on your word, that we would love you and trust you, give our sins to you, and walk in joy and happiness because of you and your love for sinners. In your name we pray, amen.